Munich City Walk. Munich, often called Germany's most livable city, is also one of its most historic, artistic, and entertaining. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining me on this guided walk through the center of Munich. Munich is big and modern, with a million and a half citizens. But with its pedestrian friendly historic core, it feels a lot like an easygoing Bavarian town. We'll start in the central square, see its famous Glockenspiel, stroll through a thriving open air market, and visit historic churches with lavish Baroque decor. We'll sample chocolates at a venerable deli and take a spin through the world's most famous beer hall. Allow two or three hours for this walk. Now, let's get going. A thousand years of history await us in one of Germany's greatest cities, Munich. How to use this audio guide. This audio tour gives each of Munich's greatest sightseeing hits its own title and track number, much like the songs of a CD or album. You can skip ahead or tailor your itinerary to your own tastes. But navigating through Munich on your own can be confusing, and it's easiest to just follow the tour in the order I've laid out. To help you along, I've invited my colleague Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. Guten Tag, Herr Steves. She'll give directions from one site to the next. After listening to her directions, you can pause the audio guide and then restart it at the next audio track when you're ready for the next site. Ideally, this walk will unfold in real time. You should be able to sightsee from start to finish without pausing or fast-forwarding much at all. But of course, when you want to linger longer, pushing pause is encouraged. If you're taking this tour with my Rick Steves Audio Europe app, don't miss its latest features. There are zoomable maps showing the route and each stop. These are viewable while you listen. A 20-second rewind button allows you to catch something you might have missed or to hear vital directions a second time. And the speed button makes me talk faster, chipmunk style. You can read the actual script of this tour, and if you'd like more information on the spot, you can download our entire guidebook on this destination with a couple of clicks. Those following this tour on their iPod rather than with my fancier app may find that my guidebook to this place, with its maps, photos, and exhibit titles, can make following this audio tour easier. Be aware that even with the very best of directions, sightseeing a big city can be confusing. Roads might be rerouted, sites covered with scaffolding, and churches temporarily closed. Be flexible, and don't hesitate to show the picture of a site to a local or to one of your fellow travelers and ask for help. Now let's head into Munich and get started. Lisa, Los Gates. What? Let's go. Okay. Jawohl, Herr Steves. The tour begins. Marienplatz. Start at Marienplatz. This is Munich's main square, dominated by the town hall or Rathaus. The U-Bahn stop Marienplatz puts you right there. Rick? Marienplatz, or Mary's Square, is a snapshot of the glory that is Munich. Take it in. Great buildings, outdoor cafes, people bustling to work, shopping, or just hanging out. Lining one entire side of the square is the impressive facade of the New Town Hall, with its soaring 280-foot-high spire. The New Town Hall, or Neues Rathaus, looks medieval, but it was actually built in the late 1800s. The style is neo-Gothic. 
pointed arches over the doorways, and a roofline bristling with prickly spires. The 40 statues look like medieval saints, but they're actually more modern Bavarian kings and nobles. This medieval-looking style was all the rage in the 19th century, as Germans were rediscovering their historical roots and uniting as a modern nation. The new town hall is famous for its glockenspiel. A carillon in the tower chimes a tune while colorful little figurines come out on the balcony to spin and dance. It happens daily most of the year at 11 o'clock, noon, and 5 o'clock. The spiel of the glockenspiel tells the story of a noble wedding that actually took place here in Munich in 1568. You see the wedding procession, the friendly joust of knights on horseback, and dancing coopers or barrel makers. Now look higher, way up at the very top of the steeple. There's a statue of a child with outstretched arms. He's dressed in monk's garb and holding a book in his left hand. This is the Münchner Kindle, the Munich child, the symbol of the city. You'll spot this mini-monk all over town, on everything from the coat of arms to posters to tram cars and so on. Ad campaigns love to show the monk holding not a book, but other things— a bundle of radishes, or a giant beer. Over the centuries, the monk has gone through several transformations. He started as a grown man wearing a black cloak with a gold lining and red shoes. Artists later represented him as a young boy, then a gender-neutral child. More recently, the Münchner Kindle is portrayed as a young girl. As a matter of fact, every year a teenage girl dressed as the Kindle kicks off Oktoberfest. She leads the opening parade on horseback, then serves as the mascot throughout the festivities. By the way, if you're interested, you can ride an elevator all the way to the top of the new town hall tower for great views of the city. But for now, let's explore the rest of the square. The statue in the center of Marienplatz honors the square's namesake, the Virgin Mary. Sculpted in 1590, it was a rallying point in the religious wars of the Reformation. Back then, Munich was a bastion of Catholicism against the heresies of Martin Luther to the north. Notice how, at the four corners of the statue, the cherubs are fighting the four great biblical enemies of civilization. See if you can find them. There's the dragon of war, the lion of hunger, the rooster-headed monster of plague and disease, and the serpent representing heresy, namely Protestants. The serpent that's being stepped on represents the wrong faith, specifically Martin Luther. Bavaria is still Catholic country. In fact, Protestants weren't allowed to worship openly here until about 1800. Now, face the new town hall and look to the right. At the far end of the square, the gray pointy building is the old town hall, or Altus Rathaus. On the bell tower, find the city seal with its Münchner Kindle, and towers. As you look around, keep in mind that Marienplatz and much of Munich were heavily bombed during World War II. The old town hall looks new because it was completely destroyed by World War II bombs and had to be rebuilt. The new town hall survived the bombs, and it served as the U.S. military headquarters after the Americans liberated Munich in 1945. Most of the buildings around you were destroyed in the war and then rebuilt, either matching their original design or in a modern style. Before we move on, face the new town hall one more time and get oriented. Straight ahead is north. 
to the left stretches the pedestrian shopping street called Kaufingerstrasse, which leads to the old gate called Karlstor and the train station beyond that. Our tour explores a bit of this busy street later. To the right, the road leads to the Isartor gate and to the Deutsches Museum. This east-west axis cuts right through the historic core of Munich, and this core is circled by a ring road, formerly the Old Town Wall. In the center of it all sits Marienplatz. Let's move on. Lisa? As you face the new town hall, look over your right shoulder to the southeast corner of Marienplatz. Just beyond the square is our next stop, St. Peter's Church. You'll see its steeple poking up above a row of buildings. Start walking there, while Rick takes us back to Munich's historical beginnings. St. Peter's Church As you approach St. Peter's Church, you're walking back in time to the very origins of the city. It's the oldest church in town, and it stands on the hill where Munich's original inhabitants probably settled. Back in the 1100s, there was a monastery here. The tiny town got its name from the people who lived here, the monks, or München. That's why the city symbol is a little monk. They eked out a living trading a valuable commodity back then, salt. Then a Bavarian prince named Henry the Lion muscled in on their salt trade. He built a toll bridge nearby over the Isar River to control trade. Henry built walls and towers and opened a market, and peasants flocked in from the countryside. Marienplatz was the center of the town, and it stood at an important crossroads along the Salt Road, which ran from Salzburg to Augsburg. Traditionally, Munich was founded in the year 1158. In 2008, the city celebrated its 850th birthday. St. Peter's Church dates from 1368, having replaced the original monastery church. It's part of the soul of the city. Locals call the church Old Peter. There's even a popular song about it that goes, Munich is not Munich without St. Peter's. The church's 300-foot spire has 300 steps leading all the way to the top. No elevator, but the view is dynamite. On the outside of the church, notice the 16th and 17th century tombstones plastered onto the wall. Originally, people were buried in the holy ground around the church. But in the Napoleonic age, the cemeteries were dug up and relocated for hygienic and practical space reasons. They kept a few tombstones here as a reminder. Now, step into the church's entryway and look for some old photographs. As you can see, St. Peter's was badly damaged in World War II but the beloved church was rebuilt and restored thanks to private donations. If there's a mass in progress, visitors are welcome, but stay in the back. If there's no mass, you're free to explore. Start with the second chapel on the left side. Now there's something you don't see every day, a skeleton in a box. As the red Latin inscription says, this was a woman named Manditia. In the 4th century, she was beheaded by the Romans for her Christian faith. Munich has more relics of saints than any city outside of Rome. That's because, for more than a hundred years, this was the Pope's bastion against the rising tide of Protestantism in Northern Europe during the Reformation. In 1675, Munditia's remains were given to Munich by the Pope as a thanks for their devoted service in the defense of the Roman Catholic Church. 
It was also a vivid reminder that those who die for the cause of the Roman Church go directly to heaven without waiting for Judgment Day. Continue further into the church. The nave is lined with bronze statues of apostles, and the altar shows a statue of St. Peter being adored by four church fathers. The finely crafted gray iron fences along the nave were donated after World War II by the local blacksmiths of the National Railway. The altar and ceiling frescoes were marvelously restored, something made possible because the Nazis photographed everything before the bombs fell. They chronicled everything in case the worst happened and they needed a visual guide to rebuild after the war. After World War II, the bells played a popular tune that stopped before the last note, reminding locals that the church still needed money for the reconstruction. Overhead on the ceiling, you'll see Peter crucified upside down. To the left of the main altar is a Gothic chapel altar. It's made of precious and fragile sandstone, and it only survived the war because it was buried in sandbags. Let's leave the church and continue our walk. As you exit St. Peter's, circle to the left, behind the church. There's a viewpoint that looks over the busy commotion of an open-air marketplace. But don't stop there. Work your way downhill, down a small staircase, and plunge into the colorful Victualian Markt. The Victualian Markt As you enter among the stalls and pavilions, just browse around as you slowly make your way to the market's main landmark, the blue and white striped maypole. The market is a lively world of produce stands and budget eateries. Early in the morning, you can still feel small-town Munich here. There's been a market on this spot since the city's earliest days as a stop on the salt trade crossroads. By the 1400s, the market bustled, most likely beneath a traditional maypole, just like you see today. Besides the lucrative salt trade, Munich gained a reputation for beer. More than 30 breweries pumped out the golden liquid, brewed by monks who were licensed to sell it. They stored their beer in cellars, under courtyards kept cool by the shade of bushy chestnut trees. That beer tradition continues in Munich to this day. As you make your way to the Maypole, you'll pass what seems to be the market centerpiece, the beer garden. Its picnic tables are filled with hungry and thirsty locals, all in the shade of the traditional chestnut trees. Shoppers pause here for a late morning snack of Weisswurst, white sausage, served with mustard, a pretzel, and a beer. Here you can order just half a liter, unlike at other beer gardens that only sell by the full liter. This is handy for shoppers who just want a quick sip so they can keep on going. In fact, a beer sounds like a good idea right about now. No, Rick. We can make a beer stop later. Maybe you're right. For now, notice the beer vending counter. Munich's seven breweries take turns selling here. The sign, Heute im Ausschank, announces which of the seven brews is being served today. As is the tradition at all beer gardens, a few tables, those without tablecloths, are set aside for picnickers. You can bring in your own food as long as you buy a drink. Now, make your way to the towering maypole. 
Throughout Bavaria, you'll see colorfully ornamented maypoles decorating town squares. Many are painted like this one in Bavaria's colors, white and blue. The decorations are festively replaced every year on the 1st of May. Traditionally, rival communities try to steal each other's maypole. Locals guard their new pole day and night as May Day approaches. Stolen poles are ransomed only with lots of beer for the clever thieves. The decorations that line each side of the pole explain which merchants are doing business in the market. Munich's Maypole shows the city's seven great breweries. And you can't have a kegger without Coopers. Find the merry barrel makers, the four cute guys dancing. Today, traditional barrel making is enjoying a comeback, as top breweries like to have real wooden kegs. The bottom of the pole celebrates the world's oldest food law, the Rheinheitsgebot or German Beer Purity Law of 1516, actually originated here, in Bavaria. It stipulated that beer could only consist of three ingredients, barley, hops, and water, no additives. It wasn't until later that they realized that a fourth ingredient, yeast, is always present in fermentation. Why was beer so valuable? Back in the Middle Ages, it was considered liquid food. From the Maypole, continue south, browsing through more produce stands and eateries. The market was modernized in the 1800s as the city grew. Old buildings were torn down, replaced with stalls and modern market halls. Now, in the 21st century, it's a wonder such a traditional place survives. It sits on the most expensive real estate in all of Munich. But locals love their market. So the city protects these old-time shops, charging them only a small percentage of their gross income, and that enables them to carry on. The city also keeps out fast food chains. This keeps the market classy and feeling authentic. Munchners consider the produce here to be top quality, if on the expensive side. At the bottom end of the Victualian market, you'll pass the trendy Pshore Beer Hall, Continue just past that to a modern glass and iron building. That's the Schranenhalle. Go inside and wander. This former grain exchange was first built back in the 1800s. It fell into disrepair and suffered fire damage before being rebuilt in the 21st century. Now it's a high-end deli. Stroll through and enjoy a whiff of top-end edibles. In the Schranenhalle, chocoholics could detour downstairs into the Milka Coco world for tasty samples. Achtung! Schnell! Hit the pause button. I'm going there. Hey, you can stop for chocolate if I can stop for beer. It's a deal. Actually, if you're ready for a break, this might be a good time. Downstairs, there's also a handy public toilet. When you're ready to move on, exit the Schranenhalle midway down on the right-hand side. You'll spill out into Sebastian's Platz. The small square is lined with healthy eateries. Continue through Sebastian's Platz and veer left. You'll soon reach the synagogue. It's not far, but if you get lost, just ask anyone. Synagogue? The Jewish Synagogue this modern, cube-shaped structure anchors a revitalized Jewish quarter. In the 1930s, about 10,000 Jews lived in Munich, and the main synagogue stood near here. Then, in 1938, Hitler ordered that the synagogue be destroyed. By the end of World War II, Munich's Jewish community was gone. 
But thanks to Germany's acceptance of religious refugees from former Soviet states, the Jewish population has now reached its pre-war size, 10,000 people. The new synagogue was built in 2006. There's also a kindergarten and day school, children's playground, a fine kosher restaurant at number 18, and a bookstore. Standing in the middle of the square, notice the low-key but effective security. While the synagogue is shut tight to non-worshippers, its architecture is striking from the outside. Lower stones of travertine evoke the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. The upper section represents the tent that held important religious items during the Israelites' 40 years of wandering through the desert. The synagogue's door features the first ten letters of the Hebrew alphabet, symbolizing the Ten Commandments. Behind the cube-shaped synagogue, is the cube-shaped Jewish History Museum, stark and windowless. While I found the museum's small permanent exhibit disappointing, good temporary exhibits might justify the entry fee. Facing the synagogue, on the same square, is the Munich City Museum. The fine museum covers Munich's history from medieval to modern. Even if you don't visit the museum, the adjacent souvenir shop in the courtyard is entertaining. But for now, let's continue our walk. From here, it's several hundred yards to our next stop, the Assam Church. To get there, continue through the synagogue square, past the fountain, cross the street, then continue west one block further on Dultstrasse until you reach Sendlingerstrasse. As you head west toward Sendlingerstrasse, let's recap what we've seen. Munich was founded in 1158 around a Benedictine monastery. The town's first ruler was Henry the Lion, who built a bridge and fortifications. That's why the city's coat of arms still features a monk, a lion, and a castle. After Henry, the next duke was a member of the Wittelsbach family. The Wittelsbachs would go on to rule Munich for the next 700 years. More on them later. By 1500, Munich was a thriving town in the salt and beer trade. With 14,000 people, a sizable city back then, it was the natural capital of the region of Bavaria. Excuse me, Rick, some more directions. When you reach the T-intersection, turn left on Sendlingerstrasse. Start walking south about 100 yards to reach the Assam Church. Perfect transition, Lisa, because the Assam Church brings us to the next phase of Munich's story. In the 1500s, Germany was torn in two by the Protestant Reformation. The northern half joined Martin Luther's Protestants. The southern part, especially Bavaria, remained staunchly Catholic. Through the religious wars of the 15 and 1600s, Munich was the northern outpost of Catholic orthodoxy for the Pope in Rome. The region even took its cultural cues from Rome. Churches sprouted up in the Italian Catholic style, Baroque and Rococo. Architects used every artistic medium, architecture, painting, sculpture, even lighting, to turn churches into an overwhelming multimedia experience. Which brings us to the Assam Church. And you'll find the Assam Church on the right side of the street at number 62 Sendlingerstrasse. The Assam Church This tiny church is a slice of heaven on earth. 
It was built in 1740 by two artistic brothers, Cosmas and Egid Assam. They collaborated on a number of architectural masterpieces. This church, just 30 feet wide, was built to fit within this row of homes. The brothers actually lived next door, just to the left. The church was their own private chapel. It was also a promotional display, a model church, where they could show off their work to potential customers. Approach the church as if you're a shopper sent here by your church's building committee. Lisa, let's say you and I are looking for ideas for our new church back home. Ooh, I do love to shop. First, let's check out the exterior. Hmm, look at those foundation stones. They'd look great on our church. Boy, they sure inspire confidence in me. And how about those legs up there hanging over the portico? Nice effect. And on the door, those starbursts would be a hit back home, too. Now let's go inside. After you. Whoa, look at this interior. Holy moly. Boy, these guys clearly brought Bernini's grandiose Italian Baroque style to this side of the Alps. Okay, we'll take a set of those over-the-top golden capitals, please. Ooh, and how about some of those gilded garlands dripping the church? Oh, and the twin cupids capping the confessional? And... And look up at that incredible dome. Wow! But wait a minute, we can't afford a dome. Oh, yes, we can. Look closer. Oh, 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 I see. That so-called dome is actually an illusion, a painting on a flat ceiling. That'll save us lots of money. Maybe enough to afford some of that fancy stucco work. Boy, it's clear. Molded plaster was the Assam Brothers' specialty. Hey, Lisa, way up in the front, check out the altar. Ooh, I love the yellow sheets of translucent alabaster. It's just like those fancy churches in Rome. But again, we can't afford to spend. Oh, yes, we can. Look, that so-called alabaster is fake. It's actually made of glass. And listen to this. These columns aren't really marble. They're just plain old wood. Oh, it's just painted with fake veins to make it look like expensive marble. And the entire place is efficiently lit by that big, clear window in the back. We'll order one of those to cut back on our candle bill. Before we go, check out the portraits of the brothers in oval frames. They're up there, flanking the altar. Well, that was a productive shopping trip. It sure was, but let's move on. When you're ready to leave, start making your way to the exit. On your way out, say goodbye to the gilded Grim Reaper. He's in the narthex. He's on the left side as you're leaving. You'll see he's cutting the thread of life, reminding all who visit of our mortality. And by the way, that shrouds have no pockets. Nope, you can't take it with you. I just gotta say, Lisa, those awesome brothers were awesome! awesome. Leaving the church, pause on Sendlinger Strasse and look to your right. In the distance is Sendlinger Tor. This old city gate was part of the fortified town wall that circled Munich in the 14th century. Now turn left and retrace your steps up Sendlingerstrasse. We'll be going several hundred yards towards Marienplatz. As you walk, let Rick continue with the story of Munich. Sendlinger Strasse, from the Assam Church 
to Kaufingerstrasse. As you walk north on Sendlingerstrasse, you'll get glimpses up ahead of our old friend, the Münchner Kindle, still capping the spire of the new town hall on Marienplatz. Munich had a rough 17th century. The ongoing religious wars and a series of plagues left the city bankrupt and powerless. Bavaria was overshadowed by the more powerful Habsburgs of Austria. While the rest of Europe modernized and moved toward democracy, Munich remained conservative and insulated, ruled by the same ruling family, the Wittelsbachs. Then, in the 1800s, a few progressive Wittelsbach kings played catch-up. They set about transforming the city into a modern European capital. The style was neoclassical, arches over doorways, half-columns, and classical scrollwork. Even on today's Sendlingerstrasse, you may see a few faint hints of that neoclassical style. Munich's neoclassical elegance was almost completely destroyed in World War II. Allied bombs flattened most of the old city. In the 1950s and 60s, the city had to be almost completely rebuilt, partly with American aid. They tried hard to preserve the old style and street plan. This is the Munich we see today, mostly modern, but with hints of its medieval, Baroque, and neoclassical past. After a few blocks, Sendlingerstrasse becomes a pedestrianized street called Rosenstrasse. Keep going straight. This is one of the many pedestrian zones recently opened up in the historic core. In 1972, the city got another makeover when Munich hosted the Olympic Games. History will remember these as the tragic games when Israeli athletes were taken hostage and then killed by Palestinian terrorists. The 1972 games contributed mightily to Munich's urban renewal. Car traffic was cleared out of the city center. The subway system was expanded. By creating pedestrian zones, Munich revived its historic core and reclaimed the heart of the historic city, Marienplatz. And that's where we are again, as Rosenstrasse spills into the square. Reacquaint yourself with the new town hall, the old town hall, and Mary's column. From here, we turn left, or west, down the big, busy pedestrian mall that is Kaufingerstrasse. Start down the street. Your final destination is about 400 yards down on the right, St. Michael's Church. But just stroll Kaufingerstrasse, soak in the modern ambiance, and let Rick point out a few things along the way. Kaufingerstrasse This car-free street leads you through a great shopping district. It's a parade of department stores, street entertainers, and good old-fashioned slicers and dicers. As far back as the 12th century, this has been the town's main commercial street. Traders from Salzburg and Augsburg would enter the town through the fortified Karlstor, which is straight ahead at the end of the street. To this day, it remains Munich's main shopping street. As far as department stores go, locals rate them like this. Beck, located back at Marienplatz, is the most prestigious. It's been here since 1861 and the most expensive. That's the place to go for a 200-euro pair of jeans. Next in line is probably Karstadt, also upscale. Kaufhof is mid-range and CNA is considered cheap but respectable. Up until the 1970s, the street was jammed with car traffic. 
Then, for the 1972 Olympics, it was turned into one of Europe's first pedestrian zones. At first, shopkeepers were terrified it would ruin business. Now, look at it. It's thriving. Nearly 9,000 shoppers pass through each hour. The shopkeepers are happy, and merchants nearby are begging for their streets to become traffic-free as well. Imagine this street in hometown USA. Keep strolling down Kaufingerstrasse, headed towards St. Michael's Church on the right. Kaufingerstrasse set Munich on a course to make it one of the planet's greenest big cities. Although Munich is the capital of a very conservative part of Germany, Bavaria, the city itself has long been a liberal stronghold. For nearly two decades now, the city council has been controlled by a coalition of social democrats and the Green Party. And look at the consequences. Much of the town center is close to car traffic with plenty of green spaces. Skyscrapers are banished to the suburbs. People get around easily on foot or in the metro system. It's a great bike town, level, compact, and with plenty of bike paths. As you talk softly and hear the birds rather than motors, it's easy to forget you're in the center of a very big city. By now, you should be nearing St. Michael's Church. It's on the right-hand side of Kalfingerstrasse, with its distinctive statue-studded facade. On the opposite side of Kalfingerstrasse is an equally historic building, the Augustiner Beer Hall. Originally founded by Augustine monks, this place has been serving locals and travelers alike now for over 800 years. Curb your thirst, Rick. But you promised me a beer. Don't worry, we'll be visiting the granddaddy of beer halls a little later. For now, concentrate on the big church on the right. St. Michael's Church Okay, drink in the ornate façade. This is one of the first great Renaissance buildings north of the Alps. The façade, with its sloped roofline, was inspired by the Jesu Church in Rome, home of the Jesuits. This was the scholarly order that served as the ideological defenders of the Roman Catholic Church. St. Michael's was built in the late 1500s, at the height of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. This church was the Jesuits' northern headquarters. From here, they waged their ideological war against the Protestants. Appropriately on the facade, a statue of St. Michael fights the demon of heresy. Now, step inside. Admire the ornate Baroque interior. The interior is striking for its barrel vault, the largest of its day. Stroll up the nave. Midway along, Note the ornate pulpit, where Jesuit priests would hammer away at Reformation heresy. The church's acoustics are spectacular, and the choir, famous in Munich, sounds heavenly, singing from the organ loft high in the rear. As you reach the altar, find the stairs that lead down to the crypt on the right. The sign says, Fürstengruft. For a couple of euros, you can head down. The crypt contains 40 stark, somewhat forlorn tombs of the ruling family, the Wittelsbachs. Remember, the Wittelsbachs ruled Munich and Bavaria for more than 700 years, from 1180 until 1918. The tombs give a quick once-over of this dynasty. There's William V, who built this church, and Maximilian I, whose negotiation skills spared Munich from Swedish invaders during the Thirty Years' War. 
Finally, there's King Otto, who went insane and was deposed in 1916, virtually bringing the Wittelsbach 7th century reign to an end. The most ornate tomb holds the illustrious King Ludwig II. Ludwig is well known to tourists for building his fairy tale castle of Neuschwanstein, 80 miles south of Munich. Ludwig didn't care much for Munich. Instead, he escaped to the Bavarian countryside, where he spent his days building castles, listening to music, and dreaming about knights of old. His excesses and romantic temperament earned him the nickname Mad King Ludwig. But of all the Wittelsbachs, it's his legacy that lives on. The flowers around Ludwig's tomb aren't placed by the church, but by private individuals, romantics, still mad about their mad king. Make your way to the exit and leave St. Michael's Church. Our next stop is the Frauenkirk, Munich's cathedral. It's located a few hundred yards away. The Frauenkirk is hard to miss. It's the huge brick church with twin green domes that tower high above the city skyline. Okay, as you exit St. Michael's, turn left or east. Start backtracking up Kaufingerstrasse toward Marienplatz. After a block, you'll turn left on Augustinerstrasse to find the church. As we walk from one Catholic landmark to another, consider how Munich's religious landscape has changed since the days of the Wittelsbachs. Back then, Munich was 100% Catholic. Today, only about a third of Munich's citizens are Catholic. 15% are Protestant. A full half of Munchners profess no faith at all. Politically, Munich has also changed enormously. The city has become an island of liberalism in the sea of conservative Bavaria. Along Kaufingerstrasse, you'll pass by the German Hunting and Fishing Museum with its wild boar statue out front. When you reach the statue, turn left onto Augustinerstrasse. Yeah, grab that boar's tusk and swing yourself around. Augustinerstrasse leads to Munich's towering twin-domed cathedral. The Frauenkirch. As you approach the massive cathedral, realize that it was built in just 22 years, from 1466 to 1488. It was one of a number of Gothic-style structures built in the 1400s, when Munich was booming. The old town hall on Marienplatz was built in that same generation, as was the Wittelsbach Castle that would eventually become the cushier residence palace. The Frauenkirch's twin onion domes are a symbol of the city. They're unusual in that most Gothic churches have either pointed steeples or square towers. Some say crusaders, inspired by the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, brought home the idea. Or, maybe due to money problems, the domes weren't added until Renaissance times, when domes were popular. Whatever the reason, the Frauenkirch's domes may be the inspiration for the characteristic dome church spires that mark villages all over Bavaria. The Frauenkirch is dedicated to the Virgin, Our Lady, or Frau. It's been the city's cathedral since 1821. Late Gothic buildings in Munich were generally built of brick, easy to make locally and cheaper and faster to build than stone. Construction was partly funded with the sale of indulgences. Step inside. Just inside the entrance, on the right, are photos showing how much of the church was destroyed during World War II. The towers survived, 
and the rest was rebuilt essentially from scratch. Now, stand at the back of the nave and take it all in. The church honors Ludwig the Bavarian with a big, black, ornate, tomb-like monument. Ludwig Wittelsbach was born in Munich. He became ruler of Bavaria in the 1300s and then king of Germany. When he was elected Holy Roman Emperor, a big deal back then, it temporarily made his humble hometown of Munich a major European capital. Ludwig granted the city a monopoly in the salt trade, and he really put Munich on the map. When the Frauenkirk was built a century later, with the wealth he helped create, his heirs honored Ludwig with this monument. Before walking up the nave, find a plaque over the last pew on the left. The plaque honors one of Munich's more recent citizens. Joseph Ratzinger was born in Bavaria in 1927. He grew up to become the archbishop of this very church from 1977 until 1982. From there, he moved to the Vatican to be part of Pope John Paul II's inner circle. Finally, in 2005, he adopted the name we know him by today, Pope Benedict XVI. Now walk slowly up the main aisle, enjoying stained glass both right and left. This glass is obviously modern, having been done after the original glass was shattered in World War II. Ahead is the high altar, under a huge hanging crucifix. Find the throne, the ceremonial seat of the local bishop, which was once warmed by the man who would become Pope. From here, look up to the top of the columns. Notice the tiny painted portraits. These are craftsmen from five centuries ago, who helped construct the church. Now walk around behind the altar to the apse. In the apse are three tall windows. These still have their original 15th century glass. To survive the bombs of 1944, each pane had to be lovingly removed and stored safely away. Wow! When you're ready, start making your way to the exit. Our next stop is the Marienhof, located 400 yards away. As you walk, let Rick point out a few things along the way as he continues Munich's story. Leaving the Frauenkirk, turn right. You'll see a tiny but well-signed passageway called the Aufhauser Passage. Rick, take it from here. From the Frauenkirk to Marienhof. Leaving the Frauenkirk, head north. Enter the Aufhauser Passage through a doorway which leads through a modern building and emerges at a park called Promenadeplatz. Start walking now. While it's clear by now that Munich is a completely modern city, its past is always present. In fact, in 2012, an old World War II bomb was discovered in a Munich neighborhood. The bomb was intact and still dangerous. The bomb squad couldn't safely defuse it, and they couldn't move it. 3,000 residents had to be evacuated as bomb experts detonated the massive 550-pound bomb. A huge fireball erupted, buildings were damaged, and every one of Munich's million-plus citizens must have heard the blast. A stark reminder of the lingering effects of World War II. Officials estimate that hundreds of unexploded bombs like this are still buried under Munich. Watch your step. Rick! As you emerge from the passage, we'll eventually continue north up Cardinal Fallhaberstrasse. But first, 
Make your way a few steps to the left into the park-like promenade plots, heading toward the flower-decked statue. Pleasant promenade plots is fronted by the fancy Hotel Bayerischer Hof. This is where many celebrities stay when they tour Munich. One of them was American pop star Michael Jackson. Fans would gather here in the park, waiting for him to appear at his window. And sometimes he did. But that infamous baby-dangling incident happened at a Berlin hotel, not here. When Jackson died in 2009, fans created a memorial. They took over a statue dedicated to the Renaissance composer Orlando di Lasso. Jackson fans still visit and leave mementos and keep it tidy. Now backtrack and turn left. Start heading north up Cardinal Fallhaberstrasse. Notice that the streets lined with what were once the 18th century mansions of leading Bavarian families. These homes eventually became offices and bank buildings. At number 11, turn right and enter the modern shopping mall called the Fumphofer Passage. Here we stroll through a slice of modern Munich. The Fumphofer Passage, opened in 2003, tries to take your basic shopping mall and give it more class. It's a series of courtyards, exclusive shops, galleries, and restaurants. Each of the five connecting courtyards, the Fumphofer, is different. They're spruced up with bubbling fountains and exotic plants. The main hall even has a hanging garden dangling from above. Munich's city planners put great emphasis on quality of life. It's little wonder that Munich is year after year always high on that list of the world's most livable cities. Locals think of their city as a community, like a tight-knit Bavarian town. They proudly nickname their metropolis Millionendorf, the village of a million people. Continue directly through the Fumphofer Passage. At the far end, emerge into the light of day and turn right. Head south down this busy pedestrian street. Notice that you're headed toward the Munchner Kindle again, high above. Continue down the pedestrian street to a big green square. You've arrived at Marienhof. Marienhof and Dalmayer Delicatessen. This square is tucked behind the new town hall, which we saw at the start of our walk. After the buildings here were destroyed in the 1945 bombings, they decided to leave it as an island of green. Start making your way to the Dalmayer Delicatessen. It's on the far side of the square. Dalmayer is the most aristocratic grocery store in all of Germany. When the king called out for dinner, he called for Dalmayer. Pop inside. As you enter, read the black plaque with the royal seal by the door: Königlich Bayerischer Hoflieferant. In other words, now presenting the deliverer for the King of Bavaria and his court. Yeah, Königlich Bayerischer Hoflieferant. Catering to royal and aristocratic tastes and budgets, Dalmayer is still the choice of Munich's old rich. Browse around. The place is famous for its exotic and luxurious food items. Stroll among tropical fruits, still squirting seafood, and fine wines. Picnickers will find lavish meat and cheese counters. Today, it's most famous for its sweets, chocolates, and coffee. The gourmet coffee is dispensed from fine, hand-painted Nymphenburg porcelain jugs. But we have to move on. Our next stop 
is the Hofbrau House. Not so fast. I haven't found the chocolates yet. True, this is a good place to pause the tour, remove the earbuds, and take a break. But when you're ready... When you're good and ready, our next stop is the Hofbrau House, a few blocks away. To get to the Hofbrau House, leave Dahlmeyer and turn right. Then turn right again, heading east down Hofgraben Street toward the Platzl. The Platzl and the Rebuilding of Medieval Munich Head east down Hofgraben. The street changes names to Pfisterstrasse. Go several blocks gently downhill to a small square called Platzl. As you walk, realize that this was the heart of medieval Munich. But virtually all the old buildings around you were flattened in World War II. Over the course of the war, the Allies, the U.S. and Britain, carried out countless air raids, devastating Germany. As they rebuilt, German cities faced a choice. Frankfurt chose what was called the Manhattan style, rebuilding with new skyscrapers. Munich went medieval. The buildings of the Platzl are a perfect example. The reconstruction happened in stages. From 1945 to 1950, they removed 12 million tons of bricks and replaced roofs to make the buildings watertight. Then, from 1950 to 72, they redid the exteriors. From 72 to the year 2000, they refurbished all the interiors. Today, the rebuilt Platzl retains its marvelous old-looking facades. The square hosts a lively mix of places to eat and drink. There's pop culture chains like Starbucks and Hard Rock Cafe alongside top-end local restaurants. Schubeck's Ice at Feasterstrasse 9 is a favorite for ice cream. At Platzl, turn right and head a few steps south. At the bottom of the square, at number 6, you can experience the venerable Hofbrauhaus. The Hofbrauhaus. The world's most famous beer hall is a trip. Whether or not you slide your lederhosen on its polished benches, it's a great experience just to explore. Before going in, check out the huge arches at the entrance and the crown logo. The original brewery was built here in 1583. As the crown suggests, it was the Wittelsbach's personal brewery to make the royal beer, or Hofbrau. In 1880, the brewery moved out, and this 5,000-seat food and beer palace was built in its place. After being bombed in World War II, the Hofbrauhaus was one of the first places to be rebuilt. German priorities. Now, take a deep breath and go in. Dive headlong into the sudsy Hofbrau mosh pit. Don't be shy. Everyone's drunk, anyway. The atmosphere is thick with the sounds of umpa music played here every night of the year. It's grotesquely touristy, filled with sloppy backpackers and tour groups. But it's still lots of fun, a Munich must. Where else can you see 200 Japanese people drinking beer in a German beer hall across from a hard rock cafe? Germans go for the entertainment, to sing country roads, see how Texas girls party, and watch tourists try to chug beer. You'll see locals stuffed into lederhosen and packing dirndls, buxom beer maids hefting huge steins and pretzels, giant gingerbread cookies that sport romantic messages, 
and kiosks selling postcards of the German and apparently beer-drinking Pope. Notice the quirky 1950s-style painted ceiling with Bavarian colors, grapes, chestnuts, and fun eat-drink-and-be-merry themes. Hey, Rick, what's that sign on the arch up there? Durst ist schlieb. Durst ist schlimmer als Heimweh. That's philosophical German beer talk for thirst is worse than homesickness. As you wander, look for hints of the local clientele. You'll see signs on some tables reading Stammtisch. That means those tables are reserved for regulars. You'll also see locked-up racks of old steins made of pottery and pewter, owned by regulars. Let's start heading out. You're right, we've got a tour to finish. And without actually joining in on the beer-drinking fun, it can seem a little... Insane. Overwhelming. Surreal. Bizarre. Yep, all of the above. As you make your way back to the exit, consider that the Hofbrauhaus's beer, called Hofbrau, is just one of the traditional seven beers of Munich. The list also includes Lohenbrau, Augustiner, Späten, and others that have become world famous. Beer halls like the Hofbrauhaus only sell beer by the liter mug. That's called Ein Maas. That's Ein Pitcher in English. You can get it light, that's Helles, or dark, Dunkles. And here at the Hofbrauhaus, they claim to sell 10,000 of these liter mugs every day. By the way, while we won't go there on this audio tour, you're welcome to pause and explore upstairs in the Hofbrauhaus, too. Next to the entrance, a staircase leads up, past historic photos and old menus, to the big folk show hall on the top floor. There, at the far end of the hall, is a small Hofbrauhaus museum. It's free and always open. Exit the Hofbrauhaus. Phew! You said it. Exit and turn right, walking back to the Platzl. From there, continue north one long block to the Grand Maximilian Street. As you make your way north, think about how ingrained Munich's beer culture is. For example, every year Munich hosts the planet's biggest kegger, Oktoberfest. It's happened ever since 1810, when King Ludwig I's wedding reception turned out to be such a rousing success that they decided to do it again the next year, and the next, and the next, for over 200 years now. These days, Oktoberfest lasts for two weeks in late September and early October. It's held at a fairground south of the main train station in a meadow known as the Wiesen. They set up eight huge tents that can seat several thousand beer drinkers each. The festivities kick off with an opening parade. Then, for the next two weeks, it's a frenzy of drinking, dancing, music, and food. There's a huge Ferris wheel. The triple-loop roller coaster must be the wildest on Earth. Done before the beer drinking, I hope. That's for sure. Total strangers stroll arm-in-arm down rows of picnic tables while buxom beer maids pull mustard packs from their cleavage. It's a carnival of beer, pretzels, and verst, drawing visitors from all over the globe. A million gallons of beer later, they roast the last ox. About a hundred yards north of Platzl, the street intersects with Maximilianstrasse. Turn left on Maximilianstrasse. We're headed about 150 yards down the street to the square called Max Josef Platz. Maximilianstrasse. 
This broad boulevard lined with grand buildings and exclusive shops introduces us to Munich's golden age of the 1800s. In the 1800s, Bavaria was ruled by three important kings, Max Josef, Ludwig I, and Ludwig II. They transformed Munich from a cluster of medieval lanes to a modern city of wide boulevards, spacious squares, and neoclassical monuments. This particular street runs west to east. At the east end, way behind you, is the palatial home of the Bavarian Parliament. The street was purposely designed for people and for shopping, not military parades. And to this day, Maximilianstrasse is busy with shoppers browsing Munich's most exclusive shops. Many are wealthy visitors from the Middle East, places like Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Locals explain that these families come here for medical treatment, usually operations, especially for the eyes and heart. And they make a vacation out of it, bringing the entire family, often even with their own car and driver. The shopping's great. There's no stress like they might feel in London. Security is excellent. The weather's cool. And they're free of societal constraints that keep them on the straight and narrow back home. Germans just politely provide the services, happy to make back some of the money that pours eastward every time they visit a gas station. Maximilianstrasse leads to a big square, Max Josefplatz. Max Josefplatz. The square is fronted by two big buildings, the National Theater with its columns and the residence with its intimidating stone facade. The centerpiece of the square is a grand statue of King Maximilian I, a.k.a. Max Josef. In 1806, Max was the city's duke, serving in the long tradition of his Wittelsbach family. Then Napoleon invaded and deposed the duke. But then Napoleon eager to marry into the aristocracy, agreed to reinstall Max on one condition, that his daughter marry Napoleon's stepson. Max Joseph agreed and was quickly crowned not Duke, but King of Bavaria. Now he and his heirs would rule as constitutional monarchs. Max Joseph was a particularly popular king. He emancipated Protestants and Jews and revamped the Victualian Markt. He began a royal tradition of gracing Munich with grand building projects. His intention was to show that Bavaria was an enlightened state, Munich was a worthy capital, and the king of Bavaria was an equal with Europe's other royalty. One of Max Josef's creations was the National Theater. This neoclassical building, opened in 1818, celebrated Bavaria's strong culture, deep roots, and legitimacy as a nation. Richard Wagner premiered operas right here. It's now where the Bavarian State Opera and Orchestra perform. The Roman numerals, MCM and so on, mark the year the theater reopened after World War II bombing restoration, 1963. Now, turn your attention to the Residence Palace. The Residence The giant building dominating the square is the Residence, once the Palace of the Wittelsbox, and now one of Munich's great sites to tour. The original Residence was a crude castle built in the 1300s. Over the centuries, various Wittelsbachs added on. 
The facade takes its cue from Renaissance Italy, inspired by the Pitti Palace in Florence. This was the court's winter palace, while Nymphenburg, just west of the city center, was the summer home. Nymphenburg has Munich's most impressive exterior with a Versailles-like grounds, but the residence interior is well worth the admission fee. The residence was built to symbolize Wittelsbach power. In the so-called residence museum, you walk through sumptuous staterooms, banquet halls, and the Wittelsbach's lavish private apartments. It's the best place to get a glimpse of the opulent lifestyle of Bavaria's late great royal family. Next door, the treasury shows off a thousand years of Wittelsbach crowns and knickknacks. The adjacent and exquisite Cuvier Theater, built in 1751, was Germany's ultimate Rococo concert venue. Mozart conducted here several times. The small but plush theater is dazzling enough to send you back to the days of divine monarchs. But the days of divine monarchy were numbered. In 1871, Germany united into a nation-state. Mad King Ludwig had little choice but to let Bavaria join in. Suddenly, the powerful state of Prussia was calling the shots in Germany. Berlin became the German capital, and almost overnight, Munich was a political backwater. That brings us to the most turbulent period in Munich's history. While we won't enter the residence on this tour, our walk ends just a few blocks from here, and it's easy to return. Now from Max Josefplatz, start heading north on Residenzstrasse. So, facing the residence, you'll be walking along the left side of the building. Walk up Residenzstrasse. After about 50 yards, pause at the first corner on the left. Look down Viscardagasse at the gold-cobbled swoosh in the pavement. To Odeonsplatz, via Viscardigasse. No more Sieg Heils. As you walk up Residenzstrasse, think of Munich in the early 1900s. It was a hotbed of radical culture. Artists like Kandinsky and Clay painted wild, abstract canvases. Wilhelm Röntgen was discovering invisible x-rays, and revolutionaries like Vladimir Lenin roamed the streets. Then came the devastation of World War I, which decimated a generation of Munich men. After the war, many Germans were angry about how it ended and felt betrayed by the German government. The city descended into political chaos. The Wittelsbach king was deposed, the prime minister was gunned down, and mobs fought in the streets. Communists, Republicans, anarchists, and monarchists all battled for power. Now as you arrive at Viscardigasse, find the memorial that remembers what happened next, the rise of fascism. The stream of shiny cobbles in the pavement recalls a bitter moment in Munich's history, the Munich Beer Hall Putsch. It's 1923, Munich is in political chaos. Out of the fury rose a new and frightening movement, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party. Nazism was a fringe party that first took root here in Munich. It was almost unknown elsewhere in Germany. On the 9th of November, Hitler rallied up his followers in a beer hall just a few blocks from here. They began to march through the streets, hoping to gather followers all along the way and eventually topple the government in Berlin. The mob marched up Residenzstrasse. I'll mention how the shiny cobbles fit into the story in just a moment, but for now, walk past them and continue up Residenzstrasse. 
Hitler and Goering led their angry parade of 2,000 Nazis up this very street. A block ahead, where Residenzstrasse spills into Odeonsplatz, there is an army of 100 government police waiting for the Nazi mob. Shots were fired. Hitler was injured. Goering also took a bullet. Altogether, 16 Nazis were killed, along with four policemen. The coup was put down, and Hitler was sent to a prison just outside Munich. During his nine months in prison, he wrote down his twisted ideas in the book Mein Kampf. Now, about those shiny cobbles. Ten years later, when Hitler finally came to power, he made a memorial here at Odeonsplatz to honor the so-called first martyrs of the Third Reich. Germans were required to raise their arms and salute Sieg Heil style as they entered the square. The only way to avoid the indignity of saluting Nazism was by turning left down Viscardigasse instead. That stream of shiny cobbles marks the detour taken by those brave rebels. Now that Hitler's odious memorial is gone, you no longer have to raise your arm. So enter the grand square of Odeonsplatz. Odeonsplatz This square links Munich's illustrious past with the Munich of today. It was laid out by the Wittelsbach kings in the 1800s. They incorporated the much older church that was already on the square, the Theatinerkirche. This church contains about half of the Wittelsbach tombs. The church's twin towers and the 230-foot-high dome are classic Italian Baroque, underlining Munich's strong Catholic bent in the 1600s. Nearby, overlooking the square, is an arcaded loggia filled with statues. In the 1800s, the Wittelsbachs commissioned this arcaded Hall of Heroes to honor Bavarian generals. It was modeled after the famous Renaissance-style loggia in Florence. From the center of Odeonsplatz, start walking to the far end of the square. Odeonsplatz was part of the Wittelsbachs' grand vision of modern urban planning. It was designed to connect the historic core with the expanding metropolis. At the far end of the square, several wide boulevards lead away from here. First, face west, or left, down Briennerstrasse. In the distance and just out of sight, a black obelisk commemorates the 30,000 Bavarians who marched with Napoleon to Moscow and never returned. Beyond the obelisk is the Grand Königsplatz, or King's Square, with its neoclassical buildings. Back during World War II, Königsplatz was the center of the Nazi Party. The official Nazi Party headquarters was there, on Königsplatz, not in Berlin. Himmler's Gestapo headquarters, now demolished, once stood about midway between here and the obelisk. Beyond the obelisk is the Music Academy, in a building that once served as Hitler's official Munich residence. Munich was known in Nazi circles by the nickname Capital of the Movement. It was here that Germany got its first concentration camp, Dachau. And Munich was the site of the infamous failed peace pact, the Munich Agreement of 1938, where Britain's prime minister tried to avoid war by appeasing Hitler. By the way, a major documentation center about Nazism is being built here as Germany is determined to learn from its 20th century nightmare. Today, the Nazi legacy in Munich is long gone, and Königsplatz is home to Munich's cluster of great art museums. A few miles beyond Königsplatz is the Wittelsbach's impressive summer home, the Nymphenburg Palace. 
Now, turn your attention 90 degrees to the right. The boulevard leading north from Odeonsplatz is Ludwigstrasse. It stretches a full mile, flanked by an impressive line of uniform 60-foot-tall buildings in the neo-Gothic style. In the far distance is an arch of victory, capped with a figure of Bavaria, a goddess riding a lion-drawn chariot. She's looking away from the city to welcome home returning soldiers. The street is named for the great builder king Ludwig I, the grandfather of Mad King Ludwig. It was Ludwig I who truly made Munich into a grand capital. The street that bears his name, Ludwigstrasse, was used for big parades and processions as it leads to that Roman-style triumphal arch. Beyond the arch and beyond what you can see lie the suburbs of modern Munich. Out there you'll find modern skyscrapers, the Olympic Park, and the famous BMW headquarters. Further still is the high-tech Allianz Arena, a soccer stadium. Since more than one local football club calls this place home, the stadium has special lighting to transform itself into the color of the team playing that day. As you enjoy the busy scene here on Odeonsplatz, let's bring Munich's 850-year history up to the present. Munich today, population 1.4 million, is Germany's third-largest city, after Berlin and Hamburg. It's the capital of the German state of Bavaria, and proudly waves two flags, the white and blue diamonds of Bavaria and the black and gold of the city of Munich. Munich is home to more banks and financial firms than any German city besides Frankfurt. It's second only to New York as the world capital of publishing, with hundreds of publishing houses. Many German and European newspapers and magazines originate here, as do Germany's two biggest public and commercial TV networks. Information technology is big as well. It's home to Siemens Electronics and the German branch of Microsoft. And, of course, Munich is home to the makers of some of the world's finest cars, BMW, or the Bavarian Motor Works. Yes, Munich is a major metropolis, but you'd hardly know it by walking through its pleasant streets and parks. We'll finish our walk at the pleasant Hofgarten. Find the venerable Café Tambosi, which faces Odeonsplatz. Adjacent to Café Tambosi is the entrance to the gardens. The formal gate is just beyond the U-Bahn entry. Step through the gate and enter the Hofgarten. The Hofgarten the elegant garden of the court, or Hofgarten, is a delight. Built by the Wittelsbachs as their own private backyard to the residence palace, it's now open to everyone. Just inside the gate is an arcade decorated with murals commissioned by Ludwig I in the early 1800s. While faded, they still tell the glorious story of Bavaria from 1155 until 1688. In the distance, you can see the garden's centerpiece, a 400-year-old pavilion shaped like a Renaissance-style temple. It has great acoustics, and there's often a musician performing there for tips. From here, you're near the gateway to Munich's sprawling English garden. It's a large park where locals go to jog, picnic, enjoy a beer garden, or frolic in the nude. Really? Yep, on summer days, so don't say you weren't warned. Or you just may want to settle down in the Café Tambosi, with its theater-style seating right on the curb facing Odeonsplatz, it's a great place to watch the world go by. Have a coffee and a strudel and think back on our walk. From Munich's origins at Marienplatz, its days as a bustling salt and beer town at the Victualienmarkt, 
We saw Baroque Munich at the Assam Church. Awesome! And grand churches erected by the severely Catholic Wittelsbachs. We saw high-tech malls, gourmet delis, and a frothy beer hall. It's fitting to end the walk here in this peaceful garden, in the heart of that most livable city they call Millionendorf, the village of a million people. We hope you've enjoyed our walk through Munich. Thanks to Gene Openshaw, the co-author of this tour. If you're heading for Salzburg, we have a tour just like this for that great city. This tour was excerpted from the Rick Steves' Germany guidebook. For more details on eating, sleeping, and sightseeing in Munich, refer to the most recent edition of that guidebook. For more free audio tours and podcasts, and for information about our guidebooks, TV shows, bus tours, and travel gear, visit our website at ricksteves.com. This tour was produced by Cedar House Audio Productions. Thanks. Auf Wiedersehen. And goodbye for now.